0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. slash Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ahí va a llegar el gol del Arsenal of Marca Mesut Özil.
1: Attention à Nicolas Pepe encore lui voilà qui crée
0: des choses. Oui. is Arscast Extra. Hello, and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, good morning to you. Good morning
1: to you too, Andrew. Can I tell you, I was honestly tempted to make it a goodly morning after watching Spurs West Ham yesterday. <laughs> it was so sensational. Did you manage to see it?
0: I didn't see it. I was not watching, but uh, I, I caught up on it uh, via Twitter, obviously, social media and things like that. I saw people talking about the the Lanzini goal. Um, some people were suggesting there's a great clip of it doing the rounds with French commentary. Mm-hmm. i got to say... French commentators are kind of my new thing
1: really I yeah they're, num- new, they're number one right
0: now. yeah they're, they're really doing it for me. I'm sort of getting more and more into this they just get so excited every time there's a goal every time, it's brilliant. but in particular that Lanzini goal wow, what a hit and, and the, the best thing about it of course you know is um, well not the best thing, but one of the great things about it was the Tottenham player on the edge of the box who just slumps mm. to his knees and puts his, his head in his hands. He's it's like, it's almost like um, the end of Platoon. You it know? is Platoon-esque,
1: <laughs> yeah. I think it's the left-back they brought from Real Madrid. He just <laughs> full, it's a great spot. I mean, I had it on. I mean, I was depressed, obviously, by the first half. I saw 3-0 sort of up. And how, do you, some...
0: how do you keep a game like that on? Because if I'm watching Tottenham-West right. Ham, right, and they go 3-0 up, I'm just like, fuck that. I'm not watching it. I can't well, watch this it. Well,
1: is, this is what I'm saying. I wasn't really watching it. I had it on and I had it on mute and I was kind of doing other things on my laptop and West Ham got a goal back. It must have been 78th minute or something like that. I don't think a Premier League team has ever conceded three goals to concede a, a lead in the short space of time that Tottenham did. But <laughs> um, yeah, it went to 3-1 and I sort of, you know, I, I quizzically raised an eyebrow but I kept it on mute I wasn't Mm. getting excited okay it went it went to 3-2 with a delicious own goal at the near post and at that point I was like okay here we go yeah (laughs) my interest was peaked the volume came off (laughs) my focus shifted and uh yeah I was absolutely rewarded I mean it's just an incredible goal as well in the last minute of a game what a strike what a hit Um, Beautiful, beautiful scenes, and as much as Arsenal can't stand Tottenham, West Ham have their own rivalry with Spurs that's pretty big too. So they will have absolutely. It's one of those moments where you're just gutted. You know, away fans aren't there to enjoy it. Imagine that silenced stadium, the toilet bowl reduced oh, to silence. While well, West Ham go off.
0: I suppose we have to just console ourselves with the many videos doing the rounds of Tottenham <laughs> fans doing that thing that people do, which still boggles my mind recording yourself and, and videoing yourself throughout a game, knowing, knowing. Imagine doing it as like a Tottenham fan. Seriously. Oh. I mean you just have to accept the fact that you're gonna look like a massive prick on countless occasions during the season. So I've been I've been enjoying those videos of guys go, whoa, we're here and then like the is is the one of them is it two brothers? Are they brothers? I don't know. There's two guys I've not seen them. They look, they look almost exactly the same. So I'm assuming they're brothers. I think they did that famous video um, at the Champions League final as well. uh, That that was doing they filmed themselves and like it's like uh, you know the start of the game. They're like, "Come on, we're here! It's the Champions League final!" Oh my god, I can't believe we're so excited! This is going to be amazing. Tottenham in the Champions League final, and then within like a second of the game starting, there's a penalty to Liverpool, and they're like, "What? No!" So their world crushes and uh, you know falls in on them straight away. So they were at it yesterday, as well. There's a video doing the rounds. I'm sure people will be able to find it. So in the absence of away fans, that will have to do.
1: Mm, I mean, yeah, it is It is the history of the Tottenham, as they say. <laughs> and, and uh, yeah, God, I just absolutely thought it was amazing, especially because Gareth Bale came on. It was the glorious homecoming, and then he went through on goal, should have scored, put it wide. He should have sealed the game and didn't, and then the turnaround. Oh. Oh, and, and especially because there's this kind of... New narrative around Spurs. And when they were 3-0 up and coasting, and in fairness, they did score some really tasty goals, there was a bit of chat going around of like, you know, well, Liverpool aren't quite what they were, and Van Dijk's injured, and maybe City, you know, Pep could be leaving at the end of the season. Could this be the year? Could this be the year? <laughs> and I love how quickly <laughs> that evaporated. In, you know, 12 glorious minutes, um, all that talk went out the window.
0: It's what was the, uh, the famous... Um, was it Andre Villas-Boas who, what did he say about Arsenal or t- Tottenham? The was, negative spiral. The negative spiral. I mean, they just he can't help themselves. Arsenal. They cannot oh. help themselves. It is amazing. It's just, you know, um, written into their DNA um, that they will well, Someone amuse should us. make
1: a documentary about those guys. Yeah, because. fly on the
0: wall kind of thing. That would be good. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, we uh, will turn our attention from that particular uh, encounter to the big game of the weekend of course uh and it would be remiss of us not to congratulate the Arsenal women for a 6-1 win in the North London derby against who Tottenham hey, what value they're giving us
1: they really, really are. And did I see? I think I'm right in saying that Vivian Miedemar is now the highest goal yeah. scorer in WSL history. Yeah. Uh, amazing. Pretty extraordinary.
0: Yeah, yeah. 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 Amazing player and uh, an amazing win for the Arsenal women. So congratulations to them. But look, let's get into it then. Let's, let's deal with this uh, game against Manchester City on Saturday evening. Mm. It's, it's one of those games um, that has developed kind of layers in my thinking over the last Mm-mm. 24, 48 hours. At first, I thought it was quite a, a strange game, a difficult game to get a hold of. And now I can kind of see, um, I'm not going to say a bigger picture, but but the more I think about it, the more there is to think about, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. You know, a 1-0 defeat is still a defeat. Uh we often go to Manchester and play in that stadium and end up played off the park and we come away and we talk about how the gulf between the teams is so massive and so obvious and what a big amount of work we have to do, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't think that was necessarily the case with this game. And there's a, yeah. an element of disappointment. And as I wrote in the, in the blog today, you know, does the disappointment come from the fact that we view city as a bit more vulnerable? because of the way they started the season, or is it because we think that we are more capable and perhaps uh, capable of doing better than we did? So it's an interesting one to uh, to consider. Um,
1: I agree. I agree. And actually, I didn't watch this game. I saw probably about half an hour of it live, and then I re-watched it um, last night and this morning, which always gives you a slightly different perspective on it because you're coming into it quite cold, you know, yeah. and you, you know how it all plays out. So I thought it was a, an interesting game to analyse for all the reasons that you said and I guess kind of one of my overriding thoughts is like the, the closer you get or the smaller the gap gets the greater the expectations become and actually mm. I thought I sensed, you know, flicking through my timeline on Saturday after this game, a lot of kind of frustration and a sense of you know, we really could have got something there and I have to say that I think I reflect quite positively on that. I think, you know, City are more vulnerable, but we're also, you know, much less liable to just go there and get absolutely blown away.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, um, there was a, a comment here on Twitter from... Be care, oh, B. I see what he's done there. Be serious 83 at be serious 83 um, who says, uh, I think uh, people aren't disappointed by the result per se, more the approach... Um, uh, we decided to play hoofball uh, for 70 minutes of that game. So, uh, you know, I don't necessarily agree w- with that part of it, but I, I think the approach is, is certainly something that we can discuss and we will discuss as we get into the, the, the bones of this analysis. Um, because, you know, there are there are aspects of this where I definitely feel we could have done better and we could have done more. And I suppose that goes right to the very start and it goes to the team selection And it goes very much to the system that we played and the deployment of Willian as centre-forward, false nine, top of whatever part of midfield you want to call it, whatever role that was. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think in here there is an element of – this is one of the layers that I was talking about. Um, There is an element of this being – Manchester City versus Arsenal, but it's also Pep Guardiola versus Mikel Arteta. That's and,
1: absolutely right. And I yeah.
0: think it's understandable to me that someone like Arteta, who has worked with Guardiola, who has, you know, who's been a mentor to him and somebody who he respects, et cetera, et cetera, who I heard him say over the weekend, he still thinks is is the best coach in the world. You know, there's an element of playing himself against Guardiola and trying to do something that maybe Guardiola wouldn't expect or trying to do something clever in inverted Mm -hmm. commas tactically. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not saying that using William there was clever because it wasn't and it didn't work. But I I think that was a factor in the way we set up in this game. And I don't think we can ignore that.
1: I think that's 100% right. And I think we have to kind of accept that probably every time Mikel Arteta comes up against Pep Guardiola they are going to try and outthink each other and you know to an extent it might end up too clever by halves and I think you could look at what Arsenal tried to do on Saturday and, and say that about it particularly in terms of the Willian thing but if you look at Guardiola's team as well I mean he played a pretty mm. unconventional system it was kind of you know Michael Cox called it a 3-3-1-3 three, 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 kind of classic Ajax shape we've not seen him do that a lot in the Premier League so, you know, I think there's a degree to which, and it had Sterling in like a central role, which he never normally plays and blah, mm. blah. So, you know, they, they were trying to outdo each other, trying to surprise each other. They know each other's way of working intimately. Uh, and, you know, they were trying to produce a surprise. And I think, I actually think for both of them, to an extent, uh, it wasn't enormously successful. Um and yeah, I mean, I, I I fear that that might happen every time we see these managers on the touchline together.
0: Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think it will probably um, die down. Yeah, d- yeah, a little bit, you know. And I think as Arteta gets more experienced and, and what have you, this will become less of a thing. Like he d- he won't have to. I don't mean to say prove himself to Guardiola because I don't think that's his intention, but I think it's sort of there in in the back of his mind a little bit. Um, Yeah. I mean, look, it is two managers who know each other inside out. Guardiola said something interesting afterwards. He said he knows everything about us. He knows everything about our players and our dressing room. And he said, I don't know that about him. Um, How much you want to read into that? I don't quite know. I don't quite know how much... Um, Arteta's knowledge of the city system played into the the decision that he made to start Willian in in that role. Um, he did suggest it was a tactical thing because of the way that City play, and he wanted to draw players out, etc., etc. So, um, but let's talk about that then. Let's talk about Willian in that role. How how surprised were you to see him? in that position because when the team came out it looked like Aubameyang was going to be playing center forward because you know here's a world class striker we've got Pepe we've got Willian we've got Aubameyang in the front three surely surely there's no reason to play him on the left um when you don't have Lacazette or Inkiete in the team so it was a, a bit of a weird one I was looking at it at first going is this is this right? Is this actually what's happening here? Um, so yeah, your thoughts. Of, you know, when when it became clear that William was going to be playing there,
1: I think it. Look, I, I don't think it worked, and it's very difficult to make the case that it did. I think it's sort of a bit more comprehensible if you think about it. You know when Lacazette was playing in that role in the big games last season against City and Liverpool it was almost like he was the more withdrawn of the three you know and and Pepe and Aubameyang in those games were kind of pushed higher in a a V shape and they were making the runs in the channels and and I, I like that I don't think that that kind of inverted front three is inherently bad as long as Pepe and Aubameyang are picking up those central areas you know and getting ahead of the, the man I think what was annoying about <laughs> the game on Saturday is that Willian often was just kind of the furthest man forward mm. um, and actually you know he, he's clearly there as like a bit of a pressing agent and to provide some rotation in the front three but it just never it never really clicked and I found myself watching it thinking like I don't think I, I sort of don't think he's better at that job than Lacazette to be honest or in so yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so it felt like—I mean, I don't know. If it, it felt like including Willian for Willian's sake, if you see what I mean. I, I just don't yeah. see that he's better in that position than other our other options there. Even if even if you do want to play a Bamiang out wide, do you know what I mean? We've mm. still got Lacazette. We've still got Nkete. Yeah, Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I saw you pointing out on your blog and you were right that the chances that we had, uh, in that game came predominantly when Aubameyang moved into more central positions. I, I think yeah. part of that is that he got away from Carl Walker, who, as much as I don't like saying it, you know, was, had a very, very good game. He did.
0: Um, yeah. I mean, he's, he's quick and he's strong and, you know, this perhaps is, uh, one of the, one of the games where, uh, you know, you have to look at the the manager and look at what he did and say mm. that it, it didn't really work on any level. Um, mm. And I, I want to sort of uh, couch that by, by saying, look, he's still less than 12 months into his first job as a manager. So there are going to be days when things go well and there are going to be days when things don't go so well. And I think we have to kind of acknowledge that and accept that and say mm. that... Um, He is going to try things and some things will work and some things won't work. And it's really how he learns from games like this um, that will uh, help develop him as a manager. But at the same time, you know, I don't think he did um, as much right as I would have liked. I think the Willian thing was, you know, was obvious that wasn't working by halftime. Um, And I'm a bit surprised that we didn't do more to change it, particularly as just before halftime, we did have those two really good chances, one uh, for Bukayo Saka and one for Aubameyang himself when Aubameyang was in those central areas. And to me, that was just like banging the drum for a halftime change, even in terms of formation, shift the formation, play him down the middle, and you make him and us much more dangerous, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I say that... uh, But also I can see that this is a game in which we didn't get our arses handed to us at Man City like we normally do. And I think there was an element of not wanting that to happen, which played into a kind of cautiousness um, in the approach and in the in-game management, if you like, because we get to 70 minutes and I was like, come on. Let's let's have a go here. Let's try and try and do something. We could be a bit more adventurous. We don't we don't have to throw the kitchen sink at it. We don't have to go hell for leather, but let's try and be a bit more progressive. Let's try and be a bit more aggressive in terms of how we're playing the game. But I think he was maybe caught between a rock and a hard place in that 70 minutes. You know, if we could just nick a goal, we can we can get something from this. He didn't want to open us up. He didn't want to expose us, I think.
1: Absolutely. And without wishing to kind of jump to the end of the game too much, you know, there's a moment, there is a moment, David Luiz goes down the right hand side, swings a really, really good crossing. And in a crazy way, you know, if a bear man gets his head on that, you come away with a point, you're like, well, there's a tactical masterclass. But I I agree, my issues are more with the last 20 minutes because... um, I thought actually Arsenal had a pretty good first 20 minutes. And you yeah. know, I was listening to the commentary today, Gary Neville. Uh, at, it's just before City Score actually says Arsenal had a pretty good 20 minutes. They have confident. They have an authority in the game. And having, you know, I know we will bear a lot of scars from these big fixtures away from home. Yeah. But, you know, it was a... Uh, It was a cagey, but relatively even contest, I think, in Mm. that opening 20 minutes. Um, Once City got the goal, I think clearly, you know, there was a little period where things swung a bit in their favour before Arsenal came back into it towards the end of the half.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's my takeaway on this. There are things, and very obvious things, which frustrate me about the game, but overall, I don't feel quite as disappointed with it as, as some people do, and that's not to tell anyone how they should feel or anything like it, um, you know, because I do think there were some... I mean, I, I can... I want Arsenal to be a more potent team, a more uh, attacking team. Those elements in our game, I think, are not quite where they should be. So I, I really understand frustration about that. But I also think when you're going to uh, Man City away, where you've had such a bad time, where you've been basically pulled apart every single game we've played there for the last couple of years, they've scored three goals. It's been routine for them. It's been easy for them. Um, you know, I can understand a, a more cautious approach, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and my do you know my main emotion coming out of this game is sort of regret that this was our next fixture because if you look back to our last game which was Sheffield United mm. um and sort of what it felt like was unlocked in the second half against them in terms of the potential uh, attacking force that exists in this team. I I do understand why going to the Etihad you know, Arteta didn't just think, well, we'll just do what we did in the last 20 minutes at home to Sheffield United. Like, I I really have a lot of, you know, appreciation for his dilemma there. And I think it's... Uh, it's reopened a conversation uh, which is a valid one about Arsenal as an attacking force and it comes in a week in which we've bloody seen Arsene Wenger popping up on every possible chat show and interview and newspaper talking about you know the beauty of flying together as a team and we feel far away from that at the moment but I do think that I also feel like well I think I saw a stat that Arteta's played a third of his games or something mad against opponents in the top six uh, and I feel for him in that regard. He's had a lot of big games it's, against big opposition. Yeah,
0: I'm tired of playing Liverpool and I'm tired of yeah. playing Man City. <laughs> I really am. Yeah,
1: yeah. And, you know, I, I, we, it doesn't, you know, we've got some more big games coming up, but I'd love a run against, like, you know, I, I mean, the problem is there aren't that many bad teams in the Premier League anymore. So, it's you, you know, it feels like maybe it's just nostalgia, but it feels like in the old days you'd get five or six games where you'd look at and you'd go, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll, have, we'll have control of the ball in those games. You yeah. know what I mean? We'll, yeah, well, I think you're right because,
0: on. you know, back then there was maybe two teams that could win the title. There were some bigger teams, you know, uh, around, but there was a yeah. lot of so-called... Uh, cannon fodder if you like uh Mm -mm. but now there's a big six slash big seven potentially with you know everton involved as well and you know the the i think there is a, a measure of competitiveness in there but i do take what you mean regarding the the stature of the opposition that we're facing um so i mean let let's let's get into this a little bit more then because i think there are there's a discussion to be had isn't there about uh, how you build an attacking team um, and can you build an attacking team unless you provide some sort of stability and platform for uh, for the players to express themselves in an attacking mm-hmm. way, right? So we had a really terrible defensive record um, last season, maybe the season before as well. We conceded a lot of goals. Uh, Johnny B, who's at Johnny underscore B underscore AFC, um, says, is Arteta getting more out of the defense than is being focused on? Second least goals conceded in the league, and we've already played the top two away. So how long do we have to bed in this defensive improvement before we can start to take more risks from an attacking point of view? And let me just say that I don't think playing Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang as your striker is in any way taking a risk.
1: No, that's a good point. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of analogies doing the rounds, aren't there, about foundations and, you know, you've got certain building blocks in place before you can have the pretty bits on the top. And uh, I understand that. And I do think clearly Arteta is... Trying to implement, you know, some structural integrity to this team. I mean, structure is sort of the key word, isn't it, for what Arteta is doing yeah. at Arsenal at the present time. Uh, and I can see that when he came in, that felt like the remedial thing to do, you know, to provide, you know, simplicity uh, and a base for this team. But you know, that has to uh, work at both ends of the field, and Arsenal finding ways to play out from the back they're finding ways to keep possession in their own third but they're not finding ways to hold possession higher up the pitch Um, Mm. and it's a really interesting one like I had a conversation with Michael Cox about this last week where he was saying to me that uh, well you know part of the reason that City are able to hold the ball higher up the pitch is that if you get good enough at playing out from the back people stop pressing you yeah. So at the moment, Arsenal are still in a phase where people think, "Oh, are they a bit vulnerable playing it out? Let's press them." And so you end up in you know, a very congested in your own third. Now nobody presses City because they know how good they are on the ball. Yeah, so they just pop it
0: around you and in they yeah. go. Yeah.
1: So so in a sort of kind of counterintuitive way, the insistence on playing it back, I think in the long term will help us, you know, have the ball higher up the field. The question mm. then becomes: I think, have you got the players? To really make the difference and make you dangerous in that part of the pitch, and Arsenal, you know, against City, when they did get in the final third, when the intricacy was there enough for them to advance mm. there, you know, with the exception of Bukayo Saka, I'm not sure that it felt like we did necessarily have those players.
0: Yeah, like I'm, I'm curious as to what Willian's instructions were and what his you know role yeah. was, and I think sometimes I think we forget that there is a real specialization in playing up front and being a striker uh, in terms of the movement and in terms of game awareness and looking at what's happening and the kind of movements you make and the runs you make which might open up a pass or open up space for somebody else. You know, and that, that I think, is where we really miss, um, you know, Aubameyang as a, a centre-forward because he has all those instincts and Willian does not. He's just not mm. that kind of player. So part of me is... Um, you know, I don't, I'm not very, um, I was going to say I'm a bit underwhelmed by Willian. Uh, I'm not very whelmed by him anyway, that's for sure. Um, but part of that is offset by acknowledging that he was being asked to play in a role which doesn't suit him. Uh, and I think it was a mistake. He didn't link with either Pepe or Aubameyang. He made three passes to Pepe, not one pass to Obamiang. Mm -hmm. which tells you that whatever he was being instructed to do, or maybe it was down to City blocking off those avenues, I'm not quite sure, but it didn't work. So it didn't, as a tactical uh, experiment or or whatever it was that Mikel Arteta wanted from this, it it just didn't work. Um, But where we did have some joy, of course, as I said, was when he went central, when Bakayo Saka had more space on that left-hand side. And to me, that's like, that's sort of singing blueprint right there. You know, there is... Something that we could work on. There is something that we could develop with Bukayo Saka playing on the left, Aubameyang in the middle, and you have two players who uh, complement each other in a way because they did combine to make that really good chance. Saka is a good dribbler; he can find space, he can make things happen, and Aubameyang has the movement, the the, the instincts around the penalty area to just. Uh, find space and to get chances. He had that one chance that Ederson made a good save from as well. So, you know, th- th- there to me is part of the solution in terms of making this team better from an attacking point of view.
1: Yeah. I, I think clearly that's a, you know, there's a chemistry there and I would like to see more of it as well. Um, and, you know, even if I can understand, I can almost understand why he did the William thing, I don't think we'll see it again, which I think is sort of the truest test of whether or not it was remotely successful. Um, I, I was thinking about this because Arsene Wenger, and I'm sorry to keep bringing him up, but That's he's okay. very present at the moment. <laughs> you can't get away from him. He was brilliant at constructing the chemistry of a front three or a front to, mm. you know, Andrea Burcamp. Burkamp. But when he put together his attacking trios, you know, his left wing, right wing, centre forward, I felt he always got a really delicate, good balance of qualities, you know, whether that was that he had Theo Walcott, who provided, you know, pace and goal threat on the right. And I don't know, Sammy Nasri mm. or Santi Cazorla on the left, you know, he had central players who could be a fulcrum, who could rotate in and out. It was something he did really well. And I was thinking about why it is that Arteta is slightly struggling with that and why there seems to be this issue with Aubameyang over his position. And I think Aubameyang is absolutely brilliant. I'm really happy he's signed. This is in no way a criticism of him. I feel like you always have to provide that caveat. But Mm. if you think about the things that Arteta might want from a centre forward, I imagine he would say, well, someone who can provide a fulcrum, someone who is a, a presser. And if not those qualities, maybe someone who's like a dribbler. And as brilliant as Aubameyang is, those are not any of those things are not his strengths necessarily, from what I see. So you have to find ways to then kind of offset those within the composition of that front three to sort of complete your his Mm. kind of pie chart, you know. And I just don't think he's found the trio. that that does that, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, you could also say that what Arteta wants from a centre-forward isn't necessarily something that uh, is sacrosanct or set in stone. You can change what you want.
1: Sure. you know, it has Um, has been thus far.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I get that. I get that. But, you know, thus far, Arsenal under Arteta haven't really often clicked from an attacking point of view. So perhaps Mm. it's an area that uh, needs a bit of a rethink. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, what Lacazette gives us at centre-forward, what Enkedia gives us uh, at centre-forward, I don't know that it's more than what Aubameyang would give us, even if the... um, uh, What's the word I'm looking for here? Even if their uh, fucking characteristics are different, you know? Mm -hmm. Well,
1: yeah, it it won't work if you ask Aubameyang to do... No. What Willian's been doing or what Lacazette's been doing—that's not going to be exactly how it works.
0: But don't ask a guy who can do what he does to do that. Find a way to 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 let him do what he does best, which Mm. is you know, um, I know. Look, the the Obama on the left thing—it feels like a tired discussion, and and part of it, I think is because we don't have enough goals from other areas of the team. So you play Aubameyang on the left, he still gets you goals. You can put a striker in, you can put a a right winger in, someone like Pepe. You know, I I can kind of see some logic in it to that point of view. Mm. But if you want to start making progress from an attacking perspective, if you want to do something different with your team, maybe you have to think about doing something different. You know, and I think yeah, what I we've got what we've got um is in bakayo Saka, uh, who I think deserves an awful lot of credit for the way that he played against Man City and was a real positive. We've got a young man here who is basically telling you by the way he's playing, I should be in the team and I should be in the team in a, a, a in the opposition half more often mm-hmm. than not, right mm-hmm. as a wing back, I know he can do the job and he can still get forward, et cetera, et cetera. But to me, he's crying out to be played on the left of a front three. Every time I see him play this season and last season, you know what he brings in that area of the pitch. We don't have anyone else who can do that on that side. Anyway, you know, I know Martinelli is is um, is sidelined for a little while, but he's a different kind of player as well. Um, So that's what I, you know, I I think Saka is staking a claim for a place in the position that Arteta likes to use, Aubameyang. That gives him a problem if he only views Aubameyang as somebody who can play there, but it's not a problem if he just says, well, why not play this striker as a striker?
1: Yeah, true. I mean, I like Saka in central spaces as well. I mean, you know, I do think when he comes inside, he's, he's very, very dangerous, but there's nothing to prohibit him doing that. You know, if he's starting as the left winger, look how much Aubameyang does it, uh, you know, currently. Mm. Um, I thought Saka was really good in this game. He looks like a really... You know, sometimes when I've watched teams like Liverpool and City, I do experience this kind of envy at the combination of technique and athleticism that some of their players display. And Saka has that, you know, the way he moves away from people mm. shows such a combination of kind of skill and power, uh, especially in someone so young. It's incredibly eye-catching. And yeah, he was he was involved in everything good we did. And I think he's he's kind of impossible to leave out at this point. He's he's crying out, like you say, yeah. to play to play more football. And mm. and I think you're right, in advanced areas is definitely where we see the best of him.
0: What about um what about their goal? Uh, does it merit a great deal of discussion? Um,
1: there was a lot of chat about Bellerin showing Foden inside, but I mean Foden is left footed, so I had a bit of sympathy with him there. Do you know what I mean? Like he yeah. thought he was gonna go outside. I mean, if you look later in the game, Tierney got done much worse by Mares a couple of times yeah. and, and produced good saves from Leno. I don't think there's masses to say about the goal. I have a nagging thing that people are gonna think it's because I'm in love with Emiliano Martinez, but I do feel like sometimes with Leno, he makes good saves but like they don't go away from the goal as much as I would like. Yeah. And it's you know, it, it's something I've noticed a few times. We've gotten away with it sometimes, sometimes not others. I think he made a couple of other really good saves in this game. So, I, again, I'm not trying to come down hard on him, but it is just a little trait that he does have.
0: Yeah, I mean, he... he, Yeah, I'm looking at it again. I mean, it's a well-worked goal. I think there are a number of things. Obviously, Ballerin, Leno... I wonder if he could have just reacted a little more quickly when he went down for the save. You know those goalkeeping things you see where they get up and they—I think he kind of slips as well. Uh, Gabriel maybe a little too far from Sterling. Um, mm, yeah, you yeah. know, just a combination of things. And you know, one of the one of the- they get the
1: breaks as well, right? Like it—it it literally breaks to Sterling. You know, yeah. there's a degree to which you have to sort of hold your hands up a bit. And, and and the funny thing is, I mean, we we could have gone in level. After that, I mean, you know, we mentioned, mm. I actually think the one where Saka has the shot saved yeah. would have been ruled out because he was offside when Tierney plays it to him, not when Obamiang plays it to him. So, oh God, a
0: imagine the be. frustration of that. Yeah. Fucking hell.
1: Aubameyang was the opposite. He was yeah. obviously pulled back, but he's on. Yeah. Um, but the penalty incident, I mean, for me, that's a penalty all day.
0: Look, Arteta was obviously very exercised about it afterwards um, when he said, how the hell have you checked that? Uh, or, you know, the, the, the situation that they decided they didn't need to recheck it. Yeah. Um, I don't really get it. I mean, uh, Michael Cox's marking was saying to me on Twitter that it would have been an indirect free kick. So, really? Yeah. Oh,
1: we should start kicking people's heads off
0: more. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think anywhere else, anywhere else on the pitch... And the referee blows his whistle straight away for a high foot. Do you not think? Yeah,
1: of course, of course. So... Uh, is it an indirect free kick? I, I, I'll, have to, I'll have to look that up. I'm sure he's right. Uh, Michael
0: says, life. at the risk of blowing up my own mentions, I believe this would have been an indirect free kick rather than a, rather than a penalty as there was no contact. I don't quite um, know what the rule is right. there, but I'll defer to Michael on that one. Yeah, I, 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 I can't believe it was nothing, though. I just can't believe no, it was nothing.
1: I find that amazing. Mm. I mean, there were a few situations this weekend with yeah, yeah, tackles yeah. and challenges that weren't picked up that were kind of extraordinary. Yeah, um, but yeah, of course that changes the complexion of the game. Yeah. Just on Gabriel, by the way, I thought he had a really good game. Yeah, I think he. I think he's been good the last I, few games. I think
0: in the in the cold light of day, I I remembered a couple of misplaced passes a bit too much. Um, right. And I, uh, you know, having rewatched bits of it and and had more time to consider his performance, I thought he was very good. Um, you know, sort of interesting that uh, I'm just looking at this again. There's a when we talk about the chances, we've talked about the two obviously that um, Saka had and Aubameyang had, mm-hmm. but there's a Pepe header around the 25th minute, 26th minute uh, uh, that yeah, he puts yeah. wide that he probably should do a little better with. I'm not saying it was a really good chance. And wasn't there a header very early in the, in the second half as well, where he hurt himself and, mm-hmm. uh, a bit when he landed. You know, right, yeah. So there were, there were moments, and there were things, I think, for all the disappointment that we have about this, there was more to like about this Arsenal performance than many of the others we've seen against Man City away in recent years. You know, and that's not to say people shouldn't be frustrated by elements of it. Of course they should. And I do think that late on, jeez, I'm just looking at another one. There was a save from Leno that he pushed straight back into the path of uh, Mares, So that goes back to what you were saying there. Mm. Um, I've lost my train of thought here completely. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the, the last 20 minutes. The I last think. 20 minutes. I don't yeah. really see what the point of bringing Thomas Partey on for seven minutes is. Just don't.
1: No, no. Uh, I, it was a slightly strange... I mean, it felt like, well, let's just give them some time. But at a point where you're one goal down in a game, mm. that's maybe not the change you want to make. But I think also um, that does tell you a little bit about our areas, our, our options in the middle of the park. You know, we're all excited about party. We all think mm. it's going to be a big signing, but, you know, we only got one of the two pieces we really needed in the midfield. So yeah, we didn't necessarily have that option to come off the bench
0: how forgiving do you think people would have been if, let's say, in the last 20 minutes we had gone for it, we'd really, you know, push forward and, and what have you, and we'd I shipped think, a couple of goals? Do you think there would be the same understanding of, you know, well, at least we went for it, I like that approach, I, I'm glad we were aggressive, or would it be like, well, there's another 3-0 defeat to Man City, what do you expect?
1: I think it would have been the latter, and I think people would have said, and I probably would have said it as well, I'm not saying I'm better than this, uh, you know, not only did we not create anything in the early stages, but then we got, you know, ripped apart as soon as mm. we tried to go forward. And, you know, these games, these big games, are decided on the sort of finest, finest margins. Mm. Um, the, the fact that we would have been criticised for it, by the way, doesn't make it the wrong decision. No, 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 and no. I, I'm And I think that's what we should have done, gone for it. I think we should have said, we're one goal down here. We've got good attacking players. Let's see what we can do. You know, you stay in the game for the first half. Sure, I can buy that. Maybe even till the hour mark. But at a certain point, the shackles do have to come off. The handbrake, you know, has to be released. And uh, it never really happened, did it?
0: No, it didn't. It didn't. Um, And that is, you know, that is a disappointment uh, because I, I think there is an element of, you know, we feel we're capable of more. Or should be capable of more, but also that Manchester City, because of what they've done so far this season, and and you know the way their team is being restructured a little bit, that they are more vulnerable. They are mm. more vulnerable, and and this is where it comes back to Arteta's in-game management, and we can question that, and you know obviously still think that we're we're on the right road, but we, I think we also have to remember that there are going to be days where his inexperience. Is a factor, and I think that w- that was one of the days, or uh, Saturday was one of those days, a little bit. Yeah, and I think
1: if you're looking for encouragement, I do think that these teams, the likes of Liverpool and City, are approaching us with a, a much greater deal of <laughs> respect in some ways, in the way that they're playing. I think if you if you see their managers after they beat us. Uh you know, it's not routine for them quite in quite mm. the same way. Even though I know the results, you know, still not going in our favour away from home. And I, I do think that, you know, the we are moving in the right direction, but we're definitely not where we want to be yet. And this discussion about how we improve going forward, how we attack, yeah. I think is gonna dominate this season because You know, I think everybody has a a measure of patience and an understanding that, you know, the the fundamentals have come first for Arteta. But, you know, at some point we have to start to to move beyond that. Yeah,
0: I mean, that's the next step, isn't it? You know, apply Mm -hmm. some structure, apply some uh, measure of stability to the team, stop them doing the stupid things that they used to do. That's fine. But you can't sort of exist on that plane forever you you can't plateau, you know, you have to keep improving. And look, the message from Arteta is is consistent in that regard, that he does want us to uh, improve and he does want us to be a more expensive team. A couple of weeks ago, he was saying, look, I'd love to be the team that dominates the ball and makes uh, 10,000 passes and has 50 shots. So I think that's kind of what he wants. But now we're at a point where, um, you know, we can't do that. We still can't do the toe toe-to-toe thing with a team like City or Liverpool. But where we want to see it perhaps is in games against, uh, I'm not going to say smaller teams because we've got Leicester next, we've got Manchester United after that. But these are the teams that perhaps are uh, our level, right? If we Mm. accept that that City and Liverpool are still a little bit away from us, maybe not as far as they used to be, whether that's down to them going backwards a bit or us going forwards a little bit is another discussion. But, you know, it's these games – and how we play against the likes of Leicester and United and Wolves and Tottenham and what we do against the teams that we are, in inverted commas, expected to beat, that is going to really play into the perception of the job that Arteta is doing.
1: Absolutely. Uh, But I mean, just sort of to ask you what you think, Mm -hmm. do you think Arteta is a coach who will ever sort of... um, What can I say? Embrace a kind of attacking freedom in the way that we're maybe accustomed to seeing some Arsenal teams do in the past. Or do you think he's always going to be a structural guy? Because my slight suspicion, and it's not something that I am necessarily opposed to, is that he's always going to be sort of structure first. It just seems to be quite fundamental to him.
0: Um, I think, yeah, he is going to be a structure guy but I don't think that means necessarily that everything is going to be completely rigid. Mm. Um, You would hope that applying structures will allow for a measure of uh, expression or creativity or or whatever it might be. Right. Um, I feel like he has had a lot to put right or a lot to correct um, in terms of what he gets from the players and what he gets from the team and i think you know another pleasing aspect to the way that we played on on saturday is the fact that we were still passing it around playing football playing it out from the back you know against a team as good as man city who mm-hmm. didn't press us as much as they might have done or have done certainly mm-hmm. when you look at the when you look back at the game that we played just after the restart. And I know it was a different game because because of the injury to Shaka, because of the injury injury to Pablo Marie, because of the David Luiz clown show, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But City's approach that day was much more aggressive. You know, they Absolutely. didn't they didn't worry about us, and I'm not saying they were overly worried about us on Saturday either, but I just feel like they knew we were a slightly different team in terms of what we can do with the ball at the back um, yeah. and what we're capable of. And, and that if you can apply some of those uh, passing moves from the back, then we can cause them problems. So I, I think I think it's going to be incremental. I don't think he's ever going to be like Arsene Wenger, go out and play and find your true inner attacker within yeah. yourself and you know roam free across the grasslands and <laughs> and do what you want with the football I don't think so that's not gonna happen but i do feel like there is more to come and i feel like like would you say man city under pep guardiola are an attacking team
1: well yeah i mean yes i would yeah i would I, I yeah and I would say it doesn't quite have the joie de vivre of, you know, the Invincibles. You know, it's it's not as, to me, as exciting a style of play as some of what we've seen at Arsenal in the past. Sure, it's
0: more mechanical, it's, isn't it?
1: Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, as much as I try and look for the differences between Arteta and Pep, there are clearly enormous parallels. And I think that whatever we do will have that sort of mechanical mm. quality to it. But, you know... It, their mechanical qualities are very effective. They're, they're a good, they've are they're got a good tin opener, okay, basically. yeah,
0: for sure. But they've also and have also had um, players of exceptional quality to add whatever flourishes you want to the, to the mechanics that Guardiola puts in place, right? So when you have a David Silva, when you have a Kevin De Bruyne, when you have um, Leroy Sané, who was there, and when you have a, an amazing striker like Sergio Aguero... You know Sterling, Mares, um, all of these guys. Uh, Bernardo Silva, who I thought was you know really good against us on on Saturday. You know the the quality of players is also an issue, right? And and of we're course. we're some way away from that. But but what I suppose I, I'm trying to say is that I'm looking at a manager uh, in Mikel Arteta who was brought up at Barcelona. You know who worked with Guardiola, who worked with Arsene Wenger. And I know he's had some more prosaic managers in his time. Uh, if you think about David Moyes at Everton and um, uh, Walter Smith at Rangers. But, you know, he's a guy who who's grounding in the game, whose education in the game has come um, at Barcelona. You know, uh, it, it influences him and uh, Guardiola, obviously. So I don't fear... That we're just going to be this kind of um, that all he wants is to be this kind of uh, what way would you put it functional team. I think he definitely wants more, but I do think it's going to take time.
1: Yeah, and every good team in the world—it's <laughs> not a particularly you know clever observation to say that they have un- as you just said unbelievable. Attacking individual quality And you know As good as Someone like Bukayo Saka Or Nicolas Pepe are You know We're effectively Hoping and asking For them to be The level of Sterling You know Salah Mane Uh, You know That's where we're trying to get And so There may be a period Where those players Have to kind of Bridge that gap And make that step And that is not easy But they are the closest thing That we have So Yeah, I think I I essentially agree with you. I think it's going to be really interesting the next few weeks because, like you say, teams like Leicester and United, I think, are more of our level than above our level. There's also a run of three Europa League games in a week, which, you know, I know it's the Europa League, blah, 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 there'll be rotation. Mm. But it will also be interesting and instructive, perhaps, how Arteta attacks those games. You know, attack being the operative word, you know, how he sets up for them and against teams who are probably not of our level not of our quality can yeah. we dominate can we break them down that's going to be a really interesting test even without necessarily all our first team players yeah
0: yeah yeah very true very true and there is of course a game on Thursday against uh, Rapid Vienna so look anything else in part one or should we move on and do uh, do some questions
1: no I think let's just go back to where we started enjoy laughing at Tottenham again Yeah, uh, and then move straight on to part two
0: okay let's do it Welcome back to the ArsCast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter, at GunnerBlog, and at ArseBlog, on the ArseBlog Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the ArseBlog, and on the Ar- uh, Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an ArseBlog member on Patreon. So, let's get into questions. Mm-hmm. And this kind of goes... Um, to what we were talking about towards the end of the, the first half, I think mm. Mm. it comes from the discord from Aaron who says, would you or the rest of the fan base be nearly as forgiving if it was another <laughs> manager instead of Arteta doing what he does right now?
1: I, I'm and I, laughing because I just saw that question and was about to ask you the same one.
0: <laughs> I got there first. Yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated by, I'm fascinated by this. Actually, because I'm, I'm. It strikes me that there's a perception that we're doing badly in some way. (laughs) Do do you know what I mean? I'm not. I'm not saying that there. Obviously, there are things we can improve, and obviously there are things that we uh, can get frustrated by. But I think overall, when you consider where we were when Arteta took over last December, December twenty sixth, whatever it was, was his first game. Um, Maybe it was a little bit before that, but, you know, where we are now and what we expect is a long way from where we were, which suggests Mm. to me that he's doing a pretty good job.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I think that I think he is doing a good job. And and is
0: is that not um, why I think it's, uh, you know, the context of it is why we might be considered to be a bit more forgiving? that's a young manager in his first job, less than 12 months into it, picked up the pieces of what was a fucking mess um, and appears to be taking us in the right direction, even if there are a few bumps on the road. Is that not the the very essence of it?
1: Yes. I mean, you won an FA Cup along the way as well. Yeah. Let's not forget that. Um, I think he is doing a good job. Absolutely. Do I think that uh, the fact that we're sort of warmly disposed to him as... I don't know, an ex-Arsenal player? Mm. Do I think that helps his perception? Almost certainly does as well. Um, We, well, a lot of fans, I'll only speak for myself, I like him. I think he seems like a a good guy. I like what he brings. I like the way he talks about the game. I like the way he talks about the club. And so all these factors weigh into my assessment of him, Mm. which is a positive one. Um, I do think there's a sort of interesting ideological thing where i think that basically you know arsenal for the last you know last 30 years or sort of you know since 1995 roughly have been associated with a certain type of football and i do think that anything that's not that football won't quite sit right and it's not even that it's what people want it's just sort of conditioning do you Mm. know what i mean with that's what we're used to seeing it's what we associate arsenal with which is mad for someone who has supported Arsenal since the 80s and 90s, you know, when they were associated with a very different type of football that was equally successful, kind yeah. of in its own way. Um, and I think, you know, when Arteta came in, I do think because of his association with the modern Arsenal and with Arsene Wenger uh, and with the attractive football that Guardiola played, there was a sort of hope of, oh, you know, it's going to be maybe it's going to be Harlem Globetrotter stuff. And as we've just discussed, I don't think it is quite ever going to be that. Um, but yeah, I, I think. Isn't this also just the nature of analysis and and conversation that we, you know, we f- we look to focus on where we can improve, and so that's sort of driving the conversation at the moment because we are in a healthier place.
0: Yeah, yeah. Look, uh, there is something, isn't there, to be said about, let's say, someone like Unai Emery who was more difficult to warm to, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of easier to be critical of somebody who um, you're not as connected to
1: someone who you hate.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's not what I was going for, but I know what you mean. Uh, Some people did, but you know, um, so look, I, I I think the, the overall context of it is, is, uh, why, um, I, I don't even think he's getting a, An easy ride. I think people are just looking at what he's doing generally, I think. um, There are always exceptions, but I think in general, people are looking at what he's doing in a pretty balanced way because they understand what a big job he's had to do, you know? Mm, mm.
1: I think I, I, I agree with you. I don't think he's getting an easy ride because I think, especially among the Arsenal community, everything is so micro-analysed and we're looking at every aspect of performance mm. I think probably outside of that he might be getting a slightly easier ride you know maybe people outside the club who aren't as close to it are looking at it and saying wow you know Arteta came in and suddenly people want to stay at Arsenal people want to join Arsenal they want an FA Cup you know maybe yeah, that yeah. picture looks a bit rosy but I feel like certainly in the conversations I'm having with Arsenal fans people are you know aware of both sides of it and you know while, while the glass remains half full it's, it's not um Spilling over.
0: Sure. Okay.
1: Let's have another question. Um, okay. Alistair Wood, boy 82 says, On Thursday, Arsenal will be playing in front of fans for the first time since March. Do you think this will affect us? And if so, will it be in a positive or negative way? No. You think it won't affect
0: I us? I don't think it will affect anyone, to be right. honest.
1: No. I mean... It's not going to be a white hot uh, atmosphere. The only, do you know what? The only way in which I think it might is the playing out from the back thing. You know, will if if fans and players sort of gear, you know, get each other going, and we're getting pressed a lot more, will our nerve hold quite as immaculately as it had in completely silent stadiums?
0: Will our players be able to cope with the uh, with the vitriol and the whistling the atmosphere from? Liesch. 30% of oh, yeah, uh, Rapid yeah. Vienna fans who are allowed in. What is it, about 20, 30% of the stadium? I must is say, I don't know, in? actually. Don't know. So it's not going to be right? full. Yeah, it's not going to be full. So, um. uh, yeah,
1: it's, it's not like we're going from zero to 60, is it? Um, no. No. So I don't think it will have a tremendous impact. But I mean... It'll be, I mean, it'll be interesting to see. I remember, I've talked about this on the show before, but I remember seeing clips from Brighton Chelsea, which was a a test event for Premier League fans in a friendly just before the season started, which had, I think, like 20% fans, something Mm. like that. And it, you know, they did actually generate an atmosphere. Look, I would love to watch a game on television with a real, authentic, non-digital atmosphere. So... Who knows? I've got my fingers crossed. they've got the loud people from Vienna. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah stadium.
0: yeah. Uh, okay, here's a question from Jacob Long at long underscore Jacob. Uh, he says we finished the season with Champions League football. The football is described as boring and pragmatic. How do you feel?
1: I don't really understand the question, sorry, Jacob. What, what do
0: you so think? we, we, we finished the season with Champions League football, so we finish in the top four.
1: But the oh, football I see. He's that we play into the future yes,
0: but the football that we play is described as boring and pragmatic. How do you feel?
1: Um, I would be fine with it honestly I would but then I was fine with great chunks of the emery rain that people weren't fine with um so don't listen to me but i <laughs> I, I honestly would be okay with that because I really do think that. Champions League football is incredibly important in terms Mm. of us making steps forward. And I think that if it requires a pragmatic slant to get us the points, which it's all about at this stage, to to make that step. And then from there, you know, who knows? Maybe we can afford to go back and and buy Jose Moua next season or whatever Mm. else it is. You know, I I could definitely um, make my peace with it, especially as, uh, you know, I'm not... uh, well, I was going to say, especially I was, especially as I'm not paying for you know a season ticket to watch it every week, but uh, with the way TV costs are going, I might as well be.
0: Frankly.
1: Yeah. I what, what about you? I don't yeah. think most people will be fine with it. That I would just add that caveat. I think I'm slightly an exception in that.
0: Regard. Um, it's one of those. It's a difficult one. Like, do you enjoy? Uh, the journey or just arriving at the destination, mm. you know? Um, I, I think, you know, for the team to make progress, top four would be great. And if that's what we have to do to get there, then so be it. I think you could rationalize that. It might make the season a bit more um, frustrating or what have you. But, I you know, I don't necessarily think the two things are mutually exclusive. You know? That's
1: absolutely right.
0: So I think it, it is possible for us to to do better and play better and be a bit more exciting and a bit more uh, attractive in how we play. I mean, again, it's the balance, isn't it? Do people want to see us win 5-4? Would that be exciting? Or do we get criticized then for letting in too many goals and for being a bit too open? You know what I mean? It's It's trying yeah. to find this balance between the defensive security that we've all bemoaned the absence Mm. of, for so long, haven't we? When you think about it, (laughs) how many times have we had the conversations about, well, we need to be better at the back, we need to concede fewer goals, et cetera, et cetera. 15
1: years, maybe.
0: Exactly. And now here we are kind of doing something about that and immediately the balance goes the other way. It's like, well, why aren't we more exciting and more attractive? So I, I kind of feel like... Whatever we do, (laughs) whatever we do, there's going to be somebody complaining about something. Um, So,
1: yeah. I I think the the point about mutual exclusivity is a really good one because I suppose my answer to the question would kind of have to include the fact that playing in a very pragmatic or, let's say, defensive, let's say defensive style, is not necessarily Mm. the best way to achieve the top four. So, you know... your chances of playing like that and actually making the top four, I think, are relatively slim. I think there's a lot of teams you need to go and beat and you need to turn one point into three. Sure. Um,
0: So, I mean, just, yeah, let me ask you something then on that. I mean, do you think the fact that so many of the games that we have played in recent times have been against Liverpool, been against Man City, uh, you know, Chelsea, uh, do you think that in some ways the perception of, of our style as a team is heavily influenced by the approach that we have in those particular games because we're 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 setting up in a very specific way because we're acknowledging the 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 fact that we are a work in progress that there's a gulf yeah. in quality so we're we're in this sort of developmental phase where we're we're trying to address the fact that we've been getting hammered in games like this time and time again Um, and maybe we're not bringing enough of what we can do in some of the other games, but because so many of these games have been against teams like that, it's sort of, that that's part of the perception of of who we are.
1: Definitely. I think it's part of it. And I know people will say, yeah, but we play like that for 60 minutes against Sheffield United, or we play like that against Mm. other teams. And And that's true. But you've got to remember, Arteta came in, I think his first two fixtures weren't they United and Chelsea, or it was Bournemouth first. But then he had big games against those opposition. He tried to, you know, hammer some structure into the side very, very quickly. No preseason. Coronavirus happens again. Mm. Uh, no proper preseason. No huge, great space of time between the two uh, campaign finishing and the next one starting. And in between this, every two weeks it seems we're playing the best team in the country. Uh, and so I think there's just never really been an appropriate moment for him to sort of bed in a different way of working or to, yeah, or just sort of, you know, us evolve away from that. And I know, yeah. I, I completely think it does need to happen. Um, and I accept that, like, you know, let's say you're playing at home to Burnley in between playing... City and Liverpool like yes ideally ideally you completely change the way you play for that fixture but it doesn't it just doesn't always pan out like that and teams don't often have very dual identities Mm. you know this has kind of in this period become our identity and it will I think take a little bit of time to shift that but I think I think it has to happen actually like I'm not sure you know, although I said I'd be fine with it, I'm not sure playing like this would get us top four. Um, yeah. I don't know. But yeah,
0: no, sure I, I, I I, do think we, you know, there's a real onus on us to to do more in the the other games. Um, the, the games that we're sort of expected to win and the games against teams who are going to be competing with us for a top four place, you know, like the Leicester game, like the United game. Um, you know, I don't think... A, there's the same need to be quite as, uh, like, I can't see him starting Willian as a false nine against Leicester, you know? No. Whatever no, his think so. thinking was there, you know, it just, uh, we're not going to do that. We're not going <laughs> to do that. It won't go
1: down well if he does. <laughs> Let's put it like that.
0: No, no. I mean, there'd be no excuses for uh, for that decision unless it absolutely pays off.
1: I mean, on the subject of Willian, there mm. were a few questions. Uh, a couple on the Patreon. Rambo said, is it time to start worrying about Willian? Axwell said, was giving Willian a three-year deal a mistake? I mean, what What <laughs> What do you, what have you made of him in this early period of his Arsenal career?
0: Um, I think I was uh, fairly open to um, the idea that three years was too long for a player Mm. uh, of his age. I still think it was. Um, I'm just not quite sure what he's bringing. Mm. You know, I know that Arteta, when he spoke about him, he spoke about him in very glowing terms, Um, you know, about what he could bring to the team in terms of, you know, I sort of had this idea that he might be somebody to kind of knit things together a little bit if you like um to give yeah. the team a bit more structure because he's he is very experienced and he is you know someone who's been there and done that uh, and I just felt maybe he might be somebody who could link things between midfield and attack a bit but I'm 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 just not sure what it is that he is bringing us he was very good in the game against Fulham he was and has been pretty average since um mm-hmm. so I'm I'm not sure what he's doing week in week out to to get the start or what it is that Arteta is trying to get him to do or bring to the to the team. Um but you know at the same time we could have the discussion about Pepe again who wasn't particularly great against Man City even if he did have a, a couple of moments. You know, uh yeah, look I'm I'm underwhelmed as I said about him earlier on. I'm a bit underwhelmed by him. Um and when you come from a team like Chelsea to Arsenal, you know, you've got a bit more to prove to win fans yeah. over.
1: And look, we had a big conversation about structure and I think uh, uh, Willian is kind of Arteta's Mr. Structure and I mm. think that's what he seems to think he is bringing. Um, yeah, I agree with you that I, I was kind of hoping that he would add a bit more flow to the team. Mm. You know, it... it uh, he's a, f- a far superior talent. But, you know, in a funny sort of way, the way that Alex Awobi kind of used to do that kind of joining up the dots job mm. you know, between midfield and attack that we obviously don't have. Mesut a discussion, of course, is a whole other thing. You know, I was hoping Willian could do some of that. And we saw that against Fulham, combining well with his wing-back, combining well with the centre-forward. We just haven't really seen it since. Yeah, I'm kind of a bit forgiving... A little bit of all our attacking players at the moment. I mean, you know, Aubameyang hasn't scored, has he, since the Fulham game? Mm. Um, you know, and, and I am generally a bit forgiving of that because we just haven't really clicked for the most part in the final third, apart from 20 minutes against Sheffield United. So, yeah. but but without wishing to keep going back to that, there you saw Willian as a kind of advanced central player doing that job, joining the dots. You know, um, you know, being a bit of a, a fulcrum. And I, and I would like to see more of that if we are going to continue to use it.
0: Yeah, okay. Um, here is a question from Nandrabi, who's at NayF1790 on Twitter. He says, Hello, gents. Did you hear Tony Adams' comments after the match insisting that a back four is the only way to win titles? Is he right? Hmm.
1: Interesting question.
0: I didn't hear those comments, by the way. I just thought I didn't it was an interesting question. So.
1: No. Um, well, I don't agree. I honestly don't. I think that there are ways to play a black back three that can win you big, big, big trophies. I mean, Chelsea literally did it not long ago. Mm. Um, Guardiola, I didn't know this, but Guardiola, he, when he started at City, played with a back three and apparently... Almost every season, he tries to push the team into a back three. He used a back three against us the other day. He used it at Barcelona to great effect. You know, in theory, it creates you an opportunity to overload in attacking areas. It's all about how you do it. And I think Arsenal's game in the opponent's half at the moment, you know, just is not good enough. And that could be to do with shape, could be to do with numbers, um, but I think it's as much to do with, you know, decisions and ability and all mm. the other things. So, I don't know. I mean, listen, I really respect Tony Allen's opinions. He knows a lot about defending. Um, but the evidence would suggest it can be done. Mm. Uh, whether or not we can do it playing the way we are now, I strongly doubt.
0: Yeah, that's fair. And I don't think, you know, it's, it doesn't have to be a back four to win a title. But I think... I think the longer we go without using a back four, the longer it's going to take us to make progress. Mm.
1: Well, I think I think we're getting there. I do think we're getting there, and I think Gabriel is a big part of that.
0: Yeah, uh, so, but- okay, well, let me ask you this then, because we had a question from Gaz Arsenal, who's at Gaz underscore Arsenal, and he says, is the answer to improving us offensively to buy a 15th centre-back, uh, one who is capable of playing in a back four?
1: I mean... Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Can we sort of add all the other... Can we like, you know, like you would do with gold, melt down all the other centre-backs and put them all together into one big centre-back and then stick them next to Gabriel and job done. I mean, it sounds ludicrous, but maybe that is it. I mean, I do think he looks like a player who could be all right in that system. Um, I think he's kind of already assumed seniority in that defence, which I did not anticipate um, mm. happening quite so quickly. And I know that I forewarned he would be named player of the month. Uh, and indeed he was, but actually I think there are very, very encouraging signs coming from him. I really think the way in which he copes with kind of the physical dimension, of the Premier League is so different to what we've had in the past in that position. Mm. Um yeah, and I think we're getting there, and and I think that is the intention. I really believe that that is the intention, and Thomas party's a player who is used to playing in front of a back four, helps teams play in front of a back four. I think we are going in that direction. Um, but do we have the other centre-half? I mean, what do you think?
0: Um, do we have the other centre-half? Not sure we do, really. Which is a me- Yeah.
1: Does anybody? Like, if you haven't got Virgil van Dijk, and it'll be very interesting to see what happens to Liverpool now, I do think there is a conversation worth having around defending and around central defenders of like are they are they is their job just sort of incredibly difficult now? Uh, I mm. do think football has evolved a little bit and we're seeing so many goals in the Premier League this season and maybe the standard of defending as Tony Adams knew it has dropped but that's been part of a kind of evolution of the role to it have to include other facets of the game
0: yeah look I, maybe um they need to be they need to be good footballers now and that's not mm. to say that the players of the past were not good footballers but it is a you know it's hugely important now uh, they really need to be comfortable on the ball um yeah, it's a good question. I mean, Liverpool without Van Dyke will be interesting because does Van Dyke raise the level of Matip and Gomez? I think he probably does. Of
1: course. You yeah. know? I, re- I remember Matip before Van Dyke, so for mm. sure.
0: You know? Um, so, yeah, I mean, is Gabriel capable of raising the level of some of the defenders that we have? We don't know yet. We don't know yet. I mean, I think, like you, the, the, the start he's had to his career at Arsenal has been very encouraging. Um, but it's too early to say that. Um, if,
1: you, if, you, if you're playing a back four, if you said, right, OK, Saturday or Sunday, whenever we play, we're going to a back four, who of the defenders we have, would you feel comfortable next to Gabriel in there?
0: The ones we have available... Or just all of the central defenders that we have?
1: I think all of them that we have, you can include in this.
0: It's a really good question. Because I think in terms of what we do and how we want to play and how we want to use the ball, Mm. you're either looking at Luis, because he's a good footballer, or Mustafi because he's also good on the ball. But both of those players give me fucking heart attacks, (laughs) you know? Uh, They brown my pants um, with too much frequency, you know? So if you're going for something for the future, is it Rob Holding? Uh, Look, again, here we are, eight central defenders on the books, and we have question marks well, I think, I think that's to, why
1: the answer to the question is yes. Like, yeah. do we need another centre half? Almost certainly, we're all thinking, hoping it might have been Saliba. That feels a long way away right now. So, mm. you know, if you're looking at Gabrielle as one half of that partnership, I think it's a really. I mean, I, I think I would probably go for Louise at the moment, but we've not seen Louise as a right-sided centre half in a two very much at Arsenal, and no. who knows what that will look like. Um, on the on this subject, by the way, Mark Morrow. On Twitter, at Monty Mark says, with Saliba not eligible for the Europa League and most of our centre backs injured or not quite ready to return, would you play Louise and Gabrielle on Thursday or would you make some sort of hybrid partnership to avoid injury slash fatigue before the Leicester game?
0: Really good question, this. Um,
1: so, uh, who have we not got? We've not got Chambers. Well, we don't know how bad holding is. Yeah, Chambers. Mustafi. Uh,
0: Socrates who's not in the squad. Saliba's not in the squad. So of the players we have available, it's Louise and it's Gabriel. I suppose you could course, play you could play Lu- and Kalasinac. Yeah, well yes. th- what I was gonna say is you could play maybe you could play a back three, you put Louise, Kalasinac, and well, we don't have anyone else for the right side, do we?
1: I mean, could you put Cedric in
0: there? He's off with the under-23s.
1: <laughs> He's busy. <laughs> um, I mean, I think Cedric will play, but I mean, I imagine he'll play right-back or right-wing-back. Mm. Um, maybe we're going to have to ask, you know... I mean, Gabriel's 22. I'm not especially worried about him. Um, I'd like to give Kieran Tierney a rest, given mm. his injury history, you know, Um and in an ideal world, you'd probably want to give David Luiz a rest, given his age, but I don't know if that's going to be possible.
0: Yeah, he's got some thinking to do there, doesn't he?
1: What else do you think we'll see in that team on Thursday in Vienna?
0: Maitland-Niles, I wouldn't be surprised if we got a start for Party Thomas Party. We think never really, really talked actually. about that, actually, um, in, in part one of the show. Were you at all surprised that he didn't start? Mm,
1: no. I thought he wouldn't start, especially after his sort of comments around it. Um, And his post-match comments kind of reaffirmed that. Were you surprised?
0: Not really. A little disappointed, though. I was
1: disappointed, yeah. Yeah, I I wanted to see him play, um, as you always do with a new signing. Um,
0: I just wonder how complex are the instructions and the systems that he has to, as Arteta referenced, he said, you know, we've got a lot of, I can't remember the exact Mm -hmm. phrase that he used, but he said something along the lines of... um, Well,
1: he meant mechanics,
0: structure. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. But how complicated can it be? Like if you're bringing in a 19-year-old who doesn't know his arse from his elbow in terms of professional football at that point in his career, maybe, but this is Thomas Partey, who's played in a very structured environment, let's remember, uh, at Atletico Madrid,
1: yeah, and he's very, very used to following instructions.
0: Absolutely. Like so maybe it is information overload or whatever it was, but I was a bit disappointed regarding that. So I think maybe to I think we might see a stronger team than than we might imagine. Do you? I think yeah. uh, who I you played
1: with the under twenty threes, because I've I think those guys I think that fixture's getting them ready for this. I think they'll play.
0: I think there was Nelson, Willock, Cedric Mm. who Kentia, else maybe. Mm, I can't remember
1: so yeah no, Nelson I've got it in front of me Smith Rowe
0: Smith Rowe so I don't think Smith Rowe will play for I
1: example yeah, Saliba can't play Saliba can't um, so I think yeah Willock will probably play and Cedric will probably play I would guess
0: yeah do maybe do you think Bernd Leno will play that's an interesting one I um,
1: think it is and I think he will
0: you think you will, why?
1: Just think there's such a clear delineation between number one and number two now. Mm. And
0: is this we'd the most like difficult this group- is this the most difficult game of the group?
1: Hmm. I have no idea how good Dundalka. I have no idea what sort of level that is, I must say. But I think on paper it looks it.
0: Mm. Um, hmm. So maybe, you know, is is this the kind of game where you've got a striker who hasn't scored for X amount of games in Aubameyang that maybe if you give him an hour, he gets back in the groove again and he's ready for Leicester. Same with Thomas Partey. Give him 60 minutes, 70 minutes. Get him up maybe. to speed, you know. I think it'll be I a perhaps a play. stronger team than we might imagine.
1: I think, uh, I don't think Oba will play, but I think, because, you know, you've got Lacazette and Ketia, both mm. potentially fresh. But I think Party will play. I think Leno will play. I think we've just said, probably Gabriel and Louise will play. Maitland-Niles will play. Mm. Um, oh, El yeah. Nene. I mean, of course, El oh, Of course. So, yeah, it'll be an interesting one. Um, I'm looking forward to watching Party seeing what he's about. I mean, there were a couple Mm. of moments, even against City, where he just separated from his man a little bit. And I thought, oh, hang on. We haven't had loads of that. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, Is it your question or my question? I don't know. (laughs) Okay. I've got one here from the Discord. Go on. Um, And we might just uh, use this one to finish off. Uh, Have Mm -hmm. you, have you been reading Arsene Wenger's book?
1: So I must confess been a very bad boy and i have r- skipped ahead and read the you read the arsenal. end yeah i know what happens? what happens he gets sacked at the end he gets <gasps> sacked I know. I know it's such a twist as well because the whole way through everyone loves him <laughs> it's like sixth sense or something um i've read the the arsenal section i have to go back and read about him you mm. know, running around the fields of Zas or whatever
0: right. it is. Well, How I, about you? I'm doing the audiobook. Of course. Um, and that, you know, I started at the start. Crazily, stupidly I started Gosh. at the start. So there's some there's some quite interesting stuff in there. Um I spoke about it with Philippe a little bit on the ArsCast on, on Friday about, you know, his grounding and his outlook on things. Uh, but he's been doing the rounds. Obviously, he's been on pretty much every radio show and TV show and talk show yeah. um, from here to King, Kingdom Come. He's been doing some doing live Mars events and all that kind of... Yeah, the Mars Bar yeah. story. How many times? A perfectly
1: um, crafted routine at this stage. Yeah,
0: I think one of the... One of the the more interesting interviews was with uh, with David, David Ornstein. Um, it yeah, was a fairly a short one. And I was quite interested in what he had to say about Sesk. So the question from mm. Mez, M-E-S, on the Discord is, why would you have a buyback clause for Sesc if Wenger had no intention of buying him back? Which is basically what he said uh, to David in that interview. It was like, I tell players, you know, if you want to go or if you think the grass is greener, then, you know, that's up to you, but there's no way back.
1: Yeah, he, I mean, I'll, I'll try and get it uh, in front of me, but he basically said you needed to make it a, a bit of an example of him, didn't he? It was sort of alluded to that Yeah, idea. that was
0: kind of it. It was like, well, yeah, if, if, if you go and you think you can come back, then everybody will do the same. Or
1: yeah. It was general guidance for me to make the players realise that if mm. you leave here, you don't come back. It was a way to retain the players who wanted to see if the grass was greener elsewhere. I did it for Thierry Henry, Sol Campbell and Jens Lehmann, but they were different. The young players who left, I didn't like to do it. Hmm. Hmm. It's a puzzler, isn't it? I I mean, my my short answer is that he didn't negotiate the intricacies of the deal. Uh, And maybe the club, you know, put that in. Yeah. Yeah. you know, to protect themselves. Maybe they didn't know even if Arsene Wenger would still be the manager in a few years' time. You know what I mean? I mean yeah, 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 where yeah. That was not a certainty. Certainly Seth's career looked like it would last longer than than Arsen's time at Arsenal. So I think it was sensible from the club, even if the manager didn't do it. I mean, I think it was a mistake from Arsene Wenger to not bring him back. Yeah. I'm, uh, I mean... Undoubtedly.
0: There's no... Because people talked at the time, we we just bought Mesudozil the year before, hadn't we? Um,
1: you can't have two good players, Andrew. That's one of the, the famous <laughs> rules. That's of a, football.
0: my general guidance: is that you should never have two good <laughs> my players. My general
1: guidance, yeah.
0: <laughs> but I, so you know what it, what it was, um, you know, in what he said to David was, it was a personal decision. There were no yeah. good footballing reasons for it not to happen. So that yeah. I found that. Both interesting and somewhat infuriating, to be honest, because this wasn't like a decision that was made. I guess I suppose he is thinking about. Is he thinking about the overall good of the the club? If this is his own perspective on if a player leaves, you don't bring him back because it helps you retain players. If he goes against that, you know, is he undermining undermining himself and that position that the club have and does it make it... But, you know, when you look back in it, there was no good reason not to do that deal. No good reason from a footballing perspective.
1: No, and there wasn't really a better deal Arsenal could do. Mm. That's the thing. Do you know what I mean? It's not like... Yeah, yes, maybe it make, makes you look a little bit smaller that you take a player back in that scenario. But, mm. I mean... I. I I think clearly it would have been the right thing. But I, I think that's a good interview. You can listen to it for free, I think, yep. on David's podcast. And it, it pushes him on some stuff that he doesn't quite get to on the book. But we're going mm. to do a one about the book, aren't we? Uh,
0: we are at some point, you know, once you sort of get around the houses. and uh, <laughs> So
1: read the beginning.
0: Read the beginning, exactly. And, you know, we can talk about that. So, yeah, we will uh, we will do that at some point. Um, okay, the game on Thursday is at 6 o'clock. So, um uh, we'll look forward to that of course uh, our first European action Rapid Vienna versus Arsenal um, for now though we better leave it there because we've been going a long time and uh, people have got busy lives to enjoy in lockdown go again. on then
1: off you go with your lives guys <laughs> ha- have a nice life
0: yeah you just enjoy your lives um, oh by the way can oh, I add one yeah, thing quickly? of course so
1: I went to the Palladium and saw us speak And, you know, uh, it it was sort of uh, risky from the old uh, COVID perspective. So I'm going to set that issue to one side. But it was so lovely to be in a room. And obviously everybody there was an Arsenal fan. Um, And when Arsene Wenger came out uh, and everybody was just, you know, chanting one Arsene Wenger, it was the first time in you know, months now, months and months, that I'd heard a group of Arsenal fans congregated in one place Mm. singing together. And it was a genuinely sort of special moment. And it reminded me of sort of the beauty and the brilliance of being part of a crowd. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I felt very uh, lucky to be there. And I just desperately, I mean, you know, that's keeping me going, the idea that at some point down the line, we will have that again.
0: Yeah. Um, how was he at the thing? Because, you know, the, the number of things that I've watched, the number of the interviews that I've watched, you know, they varied or his um, his interest in them has varied a little <laughs> bit, right? Uh, depending yeah. on the, the format and what have you. But it's hard not to get a sense that he's he's still quite hurt by yeah. the disconnection between him and and Arsenal. Not necessarily the decision to fire him or for him to leave, but what's happened since. I think um, maybe again it was with David uh, where he's asked if he's got any contact with anybody at the top of the club. And Mm. he just said no. Mm. Mm.
1: Yes. And I think the you know, certainly the era that immediately followed his departure. You know, I think he felt personally quite distanced from that group and a little bit affronted by that group. I think he really enjoyed the Palladium and I'll tell you why, simply because the reception that he got, this wasn't him in front of a crowd of, you know, this wasn't Graham Norton's audience or it wasn't yeah, a journalist he yeah. doesn't know. It was full of Arsenal fans who revered him. And it was actually really nice to be among that atmosphere because it was so toxic, you know, you almost forget how toxic it got Mm. towards the end of his reign. And people who adored him were sort of desperate for him to leave um, in some cases. And it was lovely to sort of see that uh, some of that hurt healed. I think consequently he relaxed into it and he enjoyed it more. But there was something he said, and I forget exactly what he said on the night about, about his last few years at the club. And I was chatting to someone after and they sort of said to me that they got the impression that he was almost saying that he he kind of wished or he kind of felt it was the club's decision to make about whether he stayed or he went. And that he stayed out of a sense of duty and that almost like it was on the club, do you know what I mean, to be brave and sack him. Mm. But they didn't. (laughs) And And there was a slight feeling of like, why should I... Resign? It, there's someone at the club had to show authority and make a decision, yeah. and they they never did.
0: Well, I mean, they did in that they Stan Kroenke gave him a a new contract in 2017. Yeah. You know, so yeah, yeah. I, look, it, it's a a big discussion we could have a, another day. I think, um, but yeah, but
1: it, yeah. It's interesting, and, and I also, you know, I think David's first question to him was, you know, why are you doing this so much, you know? You don't need to do all this publicity to sell your book and mm. sell. People are stuck at home. They're bored. They want to read it. I, I find it interesting that Arsene has kind of, you know, because there's no way a publisher or a PR person could make him do all these things.
0: Uh, yeah, maybe. But I, I think that there has been a big push on their part to to publicise the book. And I think he signed up for a lot of stuff that maybe he shouldn't necessarily have yeah. signed up for I feel like maybe there's a, a, an element of overkill um because how many uh, particularly when a lot of the people uh, asking him questions don't, don't about. yeah don't know what they're talking about like he did a yeah. he did an interview here on Irish television and I genuinely can't think of a worse person in the world to interview him than the guy who actually did you know right. just just no concept of football or, or, or anything else, you know? Um, yeah. So I feel like maybe he could have cherry-picked a few to do more in-depth stuff with rather than do as much as he did. But, you know, I think, I, so. I think it's, it's probably a push from the marketing department and the publishers and, and what have you. Um, and we
1: haven't had him on here, which is the real...
0: You know, a, lot of, a lot of people ask me about that. Like, did mm. why not? He's done pretty much everything else. And you know what? I didn't even try Mm. I didn't try, um, which isn't to say that at some point I wouldn't love to interview Arsene Wenger because I absolutely would. I'd love to sit down and do a podcast with Arsene Wenger, as I'm sure you would, too. It'd be an amazing thing to talk to him, particularly, you know, when we could ask him questions that other people wouldn't. Mm -hmm. And not because Mm -hmm. they're not brave enough to ask or anything like that, but because... You know, there are probably things that we would ask um, that just aren't of interest to the more general audience that some of these interviews have been catered for, right? Mm. But I just did. I just felt like this would have been the wrong time to do it because of the because of the saturation. you know the saturation, yeah, the saturation and the 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 fact that it was going to be primarily based around a book which from what we sort of heard a little bit of in the months leading up to it, wasn't going to be the kind of book that many people have built it up to be, you know?
1: It's not a tell-all.
0: No. No, no and I don't um, know that it was, you know, in our in our, terrible, in our in our wildest dreams, it's ridiculous to say in your wildest dreams you might find <laughs> out what a football manager thought about a transfer like, you know, Chu Young Park. Yeah. You know, that's, I'm sure we can all have wilder dreams than that but it was never going to be that book it was never going to be well you know what that robin van persie guy he's a right cunt <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i thought he was a great lad and it turns out he was a massive cunt well fucking blow me down with a feather it was never going to be that book so i think in in maybe in some ways it it suffers um you know because of that because that's what people want to know but maybe down the line we can convince him to give up an hour of his time When we, I also wonder,
1: uh, just in terms of him doing the rounds so much, like uh, this is a guy who, for twenty years, you know, had the the most busy schedule where he was dealing with the media, Mm. huge profile all the time, and it would be weird if he. Wonder maybe it wouldn't be, but I would. It wouldn't surprise me if he didn't miss a little bit of that. You know, like I think he. I think some, you know, if you see his press, remember his press conferences, I think mm. he enjoys the game of it a bit. Uh, he it wasn't ha- in an intellectual way. You yeah. Know?
0: He does mention that. I think he mentions that in the book at some point mm. where he talks about the, the relationship that he has or had with the press and that, you know, in his press conferences, um, you know, his relationship with them was, was quite good in that he was, uh, Fairly open with him, but he's he talks quite a bit about the, you know, the, the stuff at the start when he arrived at the club and those stories that went around and how he had to confront, you know, these really vile rumors and, and everything else. And it's how often did we say, um, you know, on this podcast or whatever, that when he talks to the French press, he's different, he's much more open. You know, you get things out of him when he's talking to uh, journalists in his home country. And maybe it's because they're friendly. But certainly that um, that incident definitely closed off uh, some avenues for, for the press in the UK. And, and rightly so for the people who are involved in, in that kind of thing. But in general, I think it, his relationship was fairly open because they could ask him anything. And he was always Absolutely. honest with them. And he, he talks about that a bit. But look. Let's we say leave the it week. there.
1: They've got lives, Andrew. Yeah, they've got lives to lead.
0: They do, and less time to lead them now that we've been waffling on. So, look, we'll leave it there. Thank you, as ever, for being here. Thanks for listening. Please stay safe, stay well, stay healthy. Wash your hands, all that, and we will catch you on the next one. Bye bye.